Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. third of april 2020 dear all chris and i have been exchanging whatsapp messages tonight about an idea i've had how about a weekly planning rated chat show via zoom which could be streamed live and recorded for subsequent viewing as a light-hearted but also substantive discussion of the past few days planning rated topics with a few questions thrown in a sort of blend of the mar show with tgi friday we could raise money for the NHS at the same time it would require a decent amount of effort if it it would be counterproductive but it could be really fun <laughs> it's getting a thousand views per week i'd only want to do this with the right people and in any event i think it'd be far better as a collection of individuals from different organizations rather than some marketing event dare i say we'd be the dream team we could rope in special guests for particular episodes or parts of episodes <coughs> and there's no reason why it would have to cease when covid19 is resolved i expect videotech will be a lasting tech legacy of the current crisis in its current shape and form what do you think? <laughs> Hello, welcome to the last episode of season three, not the last season, I hasten to add, of Have We Got Planning News For You. Um, thank you very much indeed for joining us again. That was, I say, the original email that uh, I think Chris or Sasha found in old emails uh, the other day. Um, welcome as always to our YouTube viewers watching in, in the future and indeed our podcast listeners now as well. Um, and please don't forget, as I mentioned a moment ago, to consider making a charity donation in lieu of a registration fee. We support the NHS Combined Charities Just Giving page and Shelter, as you know, but also we encourage you to make a donation to a charity of your choice if you prefer. Now, our very special guest this week is Fiona Howey. Fiona, welcome. Um, very much indeed for joining. We're thrilled to have you here. Fiona, as our viewers will know, is the, is the Chief Executive of the Town and Country Planning Association, former head of the Campaign for National Parks, head of planning uh, formerly at CPI as, as well. So huge range of perspectives to bring to the table. We're thrilled to have you on board. Why don't you tell us um, where you're where you're dining in from, uh, what theme you've uh, chosen for the, what are you drinking uh, this evening? So I am at home in Streatham in southwest London. I am drinking um, a gin and tonic, but I didn't manage to get the shops to get lemon, so apologies. Uh, I should mention that I'm drinking some locally produced gin, apparently from Tooting, inspired by uh, St George's Hospital, which is where my daughter was born. Uh, and the theme, which was co-created, I wouldn't like to claim full credit for it by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the theme for this week is Worcestershire, um, and I don't, this might be too big. <laughs> Um, wow. so, gift from my dad many years ago because I'm from Malvern in Worcestershire originally. 
It's got, they've got a Worcester majority on this show, I think, at least, yeah. uh, at least until Paul arrives. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, as as you know by now, we, we um, do our interview discussion, which Chris is going to lead uh, today um, in the second half of the show. But please do feel free, if, if you'd like to, no obligation to comment on anything we discuss uh, beforehand. So thanks so much. Now, um, Paul's still mid-inquiry, full flow, no rest of the wicked. But um, Mary, um, good afternoon. How are good you? Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Charlie. Good afternoon, everybody. Fiona, welcome to the show. I, I like you, I'm in South London, um, but I'm in Wandsworth and I am about to pour myself. I'll give you a clue. And I'm lucky. I've got the lemon in there. And I'm going to use this, which is absolutely oh. marvellous. This is, my, this is my go-to uh, Bloody Mary mixture, topped up topped up with a little bit of this because as we know there's plenty of Worcester sauce in that but I like uh, double um, quantities so yeah I'm looking forward to the show. We, 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 we have not received any money at all from the parents. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, Paul welcome perfect timing mate. <laughs> Hello Charlie how's things so Paul Tucker King's Chambers um, uh, and my my link to Worcestershire is a bit esoteric I'm afraid Fiona so uh, uh, I've just spent the day cross-examining with regard to education evidence uh, over the border between uh, Gloucestershire and Worcestershire, and particularly one of the big allocations in Worcestershire. So I hope the ears of the Worcestershire population were burning. So that's my link to Worcestershire. It's an esoteric link in relation to evidence. And that's by me time because I've literally just come out of the inquiry a moment or two ago, and I was going to do what Mary did. So hello, Fiona. Uh, now, Chris has got no connections at all with Worcestershire, have you? <laughs> No, none at all. Worcestershire, county of my birth. I've done five of the local plans out of the six. And uh, home of Edward Elgar, the Malvern Hills, which Fiona mentioned, Worcester Cathedral, the River Severn, Tomb of King John and the West Midlands Safari Park, which is just fabulous. It's, it's... Now, people in Worcestershire, Charlie, as you know, don't tend to go on about their county like others. Uh, I'm thinking of people from Yorkshire. Um, but frankly, there is no arguing with a county that can boast a world-class condiment. <laughs> should have taken some money from them, actually. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, so as you know, I live in Cheltenham uh, and uh, I'm here in Chambers in Birmingham doing a virtual inquiry about a site in Cheltenham. So uh, that's another reason why all this has got to stop. I could have just stayed at home. Um, I'm in front of Inspector Claire uh, Searson, uh, who's very, very charming, it has to be said, assisted by my junior, the hyper-efficient uh, Shona Davis, who is Welsh, the client is Welsh, and they just keep talking about rugby. Uh, I can't think why. <laughs> Can you? I can't think why. What's wrong with coming fifth out of the competition of six? <laughs> and uh, to drink, I'm not drinking, as you know, but I do like to show, I've got old school bitter, from the Budley Brewery. Oh, very nice. My mum loves because, it. Uh, because I'm not drinking, I'm just keeping myself going with licorice all sorts. <laughs> Sash, how are you, my friend? I'm very well. I'm very well. I had very happy memories of Morf, and I took the Oxfordshire under-13s there to play. They've got a very famous cricket festival every August where they take young county teams. So I've had two lovely visits to Morven and a delightful place it is too. Fiona, remind me, what's the lovely hotel there? I think they had to change it to the Great Malvern. 
Because it was the Royal Malvern, and then they were told off, I think, because they didn't oh. have a Royal Charter. Oh, okay. Well, that is a great hotel on our circuit for when we go back to Malvern to work. And I'm in London, and I am actually, I, I can feel I've completely cocked up because I'm having a tonics tea cake. <laughs> <laughs> And can I just say, whatever Chris says, I actually enjoyed the French coming back on Saturday. For those like me with the Scottish and an English bent, nothing makes me happier than seeing the Welsh rugby team lose. Sorry to all my Welsh. <laughs> Cheers, Sasha. Well, Charlie Banner here for Casey Shames. I'm demob happy today because I've just ended the most horrible run of about four weeks of literally no, no time off at all, including weekends. So... Um, so I'm on, uh, actually, I'm on a Smoky Plum Negroni from Yoracha, one of my favourite restaurants, which Deliveroo delivered to me, um, complete with rather fancy toppings in here. So that's that's sustaining me. Um, I, I was born in Birmingham, as you know, in school in Birmingham, but actually um, our house for, for um, where I grew up was in, in Worcestershire, in the wonderfully named village of Licky End, whose main claim to fame was an article in <laughs> Sun while I was at university, where a couple got up to no good in a telephone box and the son found it rather funny, um, given the village name. But um, more of that in our evening edition. Um, anyway, uh, moving swiftly on, um, and we're our first of our four cases before we get to our interview with Fiona. Um, Mary, you're going to tell us about, um, and it was a, it's another Commons Act case, isn't it? We've done one of those quite recently. It's a, like buses, they seem to have come along in... Yes, it's... Yes, this is this is a rather unusual case, though. Um, it's about the de an application to deregister land uh, as a village green, and you can deregister land as a village green if it can be shown that that land is within the curtilage of a building. So unusually, I'm switching from the Commons Act to the issue of the curtilage of a building, which for most of us for most of us, comes into our practice under the Listed Building and Conservation Areas Act. And I think uh, Rob might have a, a, a picture of, uh, or, or two, of either Blackbush, um, the, the, the uh, yeah, so there we are. There is the terminal building at Blackbush and the application to deregister. And Rob, I think you might have another um, picture of the, uh, of, with a red line plan, the application, there we go, the application was to deregister all of that land on the basis that it fell within the curtilage of the terminal building. And the matter came before a, a, an inspector and the inspector um, conceded to the application to deregister and recommended that the land be deregistered because he took the view that the land and building together formed an integral part of the same unit and that there was what he describes as functional equivalence between uh, the building and the land. Um, and you may not, some of you may not be too surprised to, to gather that Mr. Justice Holgate um, took the view that the inspector had made an error uh, of law and that he had confused the curtilage of a building with um, really, he'd asked himself the wrong question. Uh, instead of asking himself whether or not uh, the um, land and the building were part and parcel of the same cur curtilage, he in fact ha had asked himself uh, whether the land and the building um, together 
um, fell within the curtilage of an airport rather than whether the land fell within the curtilage of the building. So th the matter then went to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal um, dismissed the appeal against Mr. Justice Holgate's decision. So in other words, they upheld, uh, this is another example of the Court of Appeal uh, uh, upholding Mr. Justice Holgate at first instance, which Charlie will be very pleased about uh, in particular, um, because we know he's a fan. Um, and, uh, and really, um, that's the nub of it. I, I, I would recommend in particular to all those conservation specialists who might be listening, that they take a look at the judgment, the supporting judgment of Lord Justice Nugie, because actually he he takes us on a, a very interesting um, trip through the array of what he describes as extensive authorities um, that touch and concern this issue of um, the curtilage. And he goes back to um, 1876 and a case called Jepson and Gribble, which was all about whether um, dwelling houses that were within for, for a medical superintendent within the boundary of a lunatic asylum were within the curtilage of the asylum. And there's another case about firemen's houses uh, around the boundary of a fire station. So, so the, I think the judgment's really interesting because it's not only talking about skerrits, you'll remember that case, which talks about the relatively limited uh, extent of um, the curtilage of a building and Matthew and Campbell, another one that we regularly cite, which talks about a curtilage uh, being intimately associated with uh, with a building. So it's it's all good stuff. And the other thing which I think is quite interesting is what um, Lady Justice Andrews, who delivered the um, leading judgment, had to say. She said this. There are some words or expressions which are like an elephant. Its essence is difficult to put into words but you know it when you see it. Curtilage is a word of that nature. Back to you, Charlie. Thanks very much indeed, Mary. Um, well, um, I'm up next and I'm gonna tell you about a case called Anderson and Basildon District Council. The headline to this is, what happens when Palling Law gets nasty? Um, <laughs> surely not, surely not. <laughs> this decision of the Court of Appeal dismissing an appeal against an order committing members of the Gypsy community for a contempt court and sentencing to suspended prison sentences. The case arose out of um, the occupation of Greenbelt land, a place called Wickford in Basildon in Essex. The judgment began pretty much with the following words. On the Saturday the 28th of November 2020, a planned invasion of the land took place, accompanied by an application for planning permission filed after close of business on the Friday evening. I think by those words, it was pretty clear which way the judgment was going to go. Um, <laughs> What uh, happened was that on that Saturday, uh, 80 to 100 people uh, moved onto this site, which was um, previously undeveloped green belt land, uh, with diggers and large trucks, uh, and they divided land into plots for mobile homes and caravans. A council officer who visited the site the next day uh, was repeatedly threatened with violence, and on the Sunday evening the council applied for and got an order from the High Court prohibiting any further development of land without planning permission and prohibiting the entry of mobile homes or caravans onto the land. Well, that didn't deter the individuals in question who did precisely the opposite of what the order required them to do. And I think about court orders, if you breach them, you're in contempt of court, and which is uh, what this case was all about. Uh, and they once again threatened the poor local authority officer with violence. 
Um, a, a further court order was obtained by the council requiring the removal of all the mobile homes and caravans by the 2nd of December last year. But the appellants didn't really take any notice of that order and they retrospectively, after having breached it, decided uh, to apply to various. By that time, the site contained 18 touring caravans, one static caravan, three mobile homes, two porter cabins, one wooden shed, 17 motor vehicles and a partridge and a pear tree. Um, on the 9th of December, Mr Justice Foxton refused their application to vary, noting that little weight could be given to their argument that removing them from site would be in breach of their rights to uh, respect for their home, um, given that they were in a state of application that they had achieved in deliberate contravention of the law and of court orders. He therefore continued the orders and require them to leave the site by the 14th of December. Um, the applicants uh, disregarded that order too, and instead they carried on with further works. Um, the council applied them to be committed for contempt of court, uh, for breaching those orders. The judge at first instance said it, it's not easy to envisage a more flagrant and coordinated breach of planning control by a group of individuals acting in concert on previously undergone Greenbelt land. And there's been a complete failure to comply with the orders. Uh, he rejected their assertion that they'd be in breach of the COVID regulations by complying with the orders and gave a declaration in his order um, that a prosecution under the COVID regulations uh, would not be in the public interest. Um, he imposed a, um, uh, a prison sentence of four to eight months suspended on the condition that they left the site and cleared it within certain deadlines. So he said, you know, if you don't leave by the 3rd of March, um, you go to prison, uh, but if you do leave in accordance with the order, you won't be prosecuted under COVID. Um, the uh, appellants appealed to the Court of Appeal, and they said the judge was wrong in law in committing them for contempt because it would be contrary to the COVID regulations to for them to comply with the order because they wouldn't have a reasonable excuse. Uh, as it was a committal case, they didn't need permission to appeal, and it's pretty clear from the judgment they wouldn't have got it if they had needed it. The Court of Appeal said the answer to the case was simple, the judge's sentence, they said, was the very least he could have imposed in the circumstances. His decision to suspend the sentences rather than send them straight to jail was, they said, more than fair. And then they went to say this, and this is the, perhaps the most interesting. Having shown little, so little regard for the law in other respects, the appellants now claim to be troubled by their obligations to obey the COVID regulations. However, they would plainly have a reasonable excuse for moving off the land in compliance with the court order. Um, and again, they go on to say the judge's declarations weren't declarations in the strict sense, they wouldn't be in breach of the law, but well-meaning attempt to assist them. Unfortunately, their overall conduct shows their reliance on the COVID regulations to be just another strategy for staying on the land as long as possible. The regulations were enforced when they moved onto the land, but they moved anyhow. They didn't require them con to continue to develop the land to breach the order, but they did so anyhow. No coherent argument was made to the judge that the COVID regulations prevent compliance with the orders. And the court also re rejected the submission that the judge didn't take sufficient account of the appellant's personal circumstances. They wanted to say that the maximum term for contempt of court was two years. The breach was abrasion uh, and they made pretty clear that the appellants were lucky to have been let off with a suspended sentence, as surely they were. I'm pretty sure that I would have sent them straight to jail, to be quite honest, for all of that. Um, so the message is don't break the law, boys and girls, or you just might end up in jail. And on that, Sasha. Mm. Well, Charlie, as you know, the ex-head ex of chambers of one of the chambers that formed Landmark was Lord Goddard, Lord Justice Goddard, that famous judge who, who basically would have taken the same approach as you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also, can I just thank someone who's identified the correct hotel we were all trying to grapple with was the Abbey Hotel, yeah. which is a cracking hotel in the centre of Malvern. Um, 
Right. My case is a really extraordinary case. I think it's probably the first time we've done a high court challenge. It's a judicial review and it's got about four extraordinary factors in it. The first is it's a challenge to the grant of a planning permission from 2013. Um, so the planning permission was of some extreme vintage, as you can see from the date. And as all of our eagle-eyed listeners will know, you've normally got to come within six weeks. But this case is over six years. So that's the first extraordinary factor. The second extraordinary factor is the local authority accepted that they shouldn't have granted the planning permission. It was under challenge. They conceded that ground. The third extraordinary factor is the interested party also accepted that the permission was, should effectively was unlawful. So there was unanimity that the grounds of challenge were all made out and, the, and effectively the planning permission was granted unlawfully. The fourth extraordinary factor was the fundamental issue, which is should the court grant relief and entertain a judicial review so out of time? And of those of you who, again, are very well aware of such matters, the court does have an inherent discretion to grant judicial review well out of time. And of course, that was the issue that was grappled with by the Court of Appeal, sorry, by Mrs Justice Leaven in the High Court. And the decision she took was that the circumstances here were, in her words, a unique and exceptional case. Now, let me get to the nub of why this is a unique and exceptional case. And for all of those officers who are involved in validation, please concentrate. And also all those from the applicant side who are involved in putting applications together, please concentrate. The little matter of the red line. What was actually applied for, this is a holiday park, was a, a, a vast, great, um, involved, this dealed with a part down Holiday Park, beautiful part of the world in Devon. I'm not going to, is it Croyd? Crowd? I have Croyd. Croyd. I would ask our West Country correspondent on the correct pronunciation. Uh, the Queen of Plymouth will tell us what it is. Um, <laughs> and we, but basically, this was a holiday park and they wanted to extend the hours of which they could have occupation on the, on the holiday homes. And what happened on, inadvertently, the applicant had a vast great red line that covered, I think, 12 hectares, not just the holiday part, the existing holiday part, but a vastly greater area. Planning permission is granted. It comes, obviously, to the um, applicant's attention some years later, I think four years later, wow, we've potentially got this golden permission, which allows us to put vast number of holiday homes across the AOMB. And what they do is they apply for an LDC. And of course, the inspector says, after an appeal, because the LPA turned them down, the inspector says, my hands are pretty much tied. I've got to grant it because the permission exists and it hasn't been quashed. Of course, then the local residents association, who last thing they want is a vast holiday park covering the AOB, do the judicial review. Uh, and the outcome is that Mrs Justice Lehman, in balancing the factors took the view, and just to give you the overriding factor on all of those who are interested in this, obviously the, the law requires a balance between obviously the interests of the applicant, who in more most all cases has relied on the permission, and of course the interest, the public interest, that we can't have a system that grants frankly crap and illegal planning permissions. So what the court decided in this matter, and Mrs Justice Leaven decided the overriding factor which determined that she would grant relief and allow the application to be brought out of time, 
was the harm that would flow from upholding the planning permission. So uh, anyone who's got a case which both involves trying to get a planning permission quashed out of the six weeks, have a look at this case because it's pretty important and interesting. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, I should just show the kind of slightly arbitrary distinction between time limits for judicial review and for statutory review of inspector or secretary of state decisions, because no matter how compelling the public interest, if it had been a, a, a permission granted on appeal, there would have been no scope for extension of time because it's an absolute hard cutoff. Um, it's a slightly arbitrary distinction, really. Charlie, before you turn to, to Paul, Paul, can I just say, you and I and Fiona are the only ones who haven't sworn yet. The other three have. <laughs> Maybe with reference to a drink. But uh, do maintain standards. Of <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, is crap a swear word in Worcestershire? Yes, and most yeah. places on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll try to... <laughs> I'll try to restrain myself, Chris, but I nearly did, or I may have done under my breath when you made the comments about Yorkshire. But you know, <laughs> I'm sure Rob can dial that up in the volume. Now, Paul, we're reliant on you to raise the standards. How low have we sunk? Um, oh. What are you going to tell us about? I'm going to tell you about Ledbury. Uh, I'm going to tell you about a triumph from somebody called Chris Young, who apparently came top of a, a, a league last uh, last week, for which we unreservedly uh, congratulate him. It was the owl. It was the owl. It was the real Chris Young. Yeah. Uh, well, when he's on the show, we'll congratulate him. This is an appeal by Bloor Homes, uh, which was allowed. It was uh, an inquiry held last July, uh, one of the first inquiries under lockdown. And it was uh, a, a proposal uh, on... Yeah, that's the one. It was a proposal on an allocated site, policy LB2, the core strategy... And it was a case where there was a recommendation for approval uh, back in uh, uh, December 2019. Uh, it was a scheme which was recovered by the Secretary of State for his consideration in March of last year. Uh, and it's a case where the council held up the white flag having refused consent. So it was essentially left down to the town council to run a case against the appellants. And the town council did so. And the town council did so with enthusiasm. Andrew Park Parkinson no doubt did the usual good job that Andrew would do. Um, however, came second and the arguments really were around access. Uh, it's a fairly straightforward case, to be blunt, because there's a lack of five-year land supply and there was significant evidence that was called in relation to about the need, strategy, highways, etc. The interesting thing about it, ironically, is not the decision. The interesting decision thing about it is the costs award because costs were awarded up to the point against the council, the district council, up to the point that they withdrew their opposition to the appeal. And there was a partial award on a small issue in relation to the town council. Um, to, to be blunt, refusing an allocated site and then pulling your reasons for refusal, having, refu having refused it, and then not turning up to the inquiry and putting forward a case, um, you've already triggered your unreasonableness. What's the appellant to do in that situation? Um, but for but but to pursue the case with as much vigour as they can, and in terms of presenting a case which goes beyond uh, the, uh, the 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 arguments that the town council are raising, well, so what? An appellant has got to demonstrate that they are addressing the benefits of a scheme. My view is, as I've put in in other places, and and certainly my response to the white paper is a dead simple amendment to PPG should be that if a council refuses an application on an allocated site and then doesn't defend the reasons for refusal, there should be a presumption that they pay their costs, not are they being unreasonable there afterwards, or at least have a power to allow the council to go back. So on that case, it's an illustration of why the costs 
regime isn't strong enough. Um, and whilst I have the floor, um, after last week's show, <laughs> after last week's show, um, when you introduced me as talking about Preston, Charlie, he's gone. Uh, he's gone. Uh, I ordered a Preston North End shirt so I could deal with the Cardwell Farm appeal decision, which hasn't been allocated to me. <laughs> I love it. Uh, my my shirt's not arrived, Charlie, so I can't join you in any way. I didn't have chance time to put it in. But but the Cardwell Farm case is one to watch essentially. So I'm not going to tell you the details apart from it's one of the one of a number of cases, number of appeals. There's High Court trips as well. Uh, it's one of a number of cases relating to how the three central lanks authority are dealing with housing at the moment with MOUs, and it all revolves around what really is a review for the purpose of section of paragraph 73 of MPPF. I'm told this decision is going to be subject to challenge. That was what was said by Giles Kennett at, at an inquiry for Preston last week, a different inquiry. We've got a three-week inquiry coming up with multiple conjoined uh, appeals in a few weeks' time. This really is one to watch uh, because it gets it's getting interesting in terms of the overall approach. But the wider point is, what is a review for the purposes of uh, paragraph 73 of MPPF? And I love Preston, and it's wonderful, but it's not as good as drinking Malvern water. This is Preston water, sorry. Malvern, it's pronounced Malvern. <laughs> Paul, can I just say, Malvern? Paul, can I just say you didn't know? Inquiry closed 12th of Feb, decision 9th of March. Quite impressive for 150 hours. How quick that decision is. That's quite a big speeding up, actually, decisions I've noticed uh, yeah. recently. Um, good, good on the inspectors uh, for, for that. Interesting, a, a fellow Paul has said, Paul, that it's worth noting, of course, in that Ledbury decision, the um, Secretary of State endorsed a Section 106, including a contribution to the NHS Trust contrary to that Teenbridge decision. I think it's fair to say my understanding, Chris, is, is that, that that contribution wasn't um, uh, wasn't contested. Um, but that that thorny issue about whether NHS trust um, contributions are compliant with the civil regulations is something that uh, I know is of considerable interest to a number of people. Yes, uh, some of my clients in the house building industry don't feel this is the time not to pay an NHS contribution, but that's a matter for them. Um, Some of yeah. think we do already have taxes, but that's another matter. Uh, <laughs> just to say, Paul, just on the cost, you know, we did ask for uh, all our costs. Um, and uh, in another decision for Bloors, uh, Cromarsh Gifford, the inspector did do exactly what you said, gave the full award of costs because the council had triggered the appeal and then run away. And um, that's what happened in this case. Why, why should they not have why should they not have paid for what they did? So. I mean, well done to my opponents for containing their costs, um, but uh, the inspector didn't want to award all the costs. No, no. Great. Well, well done, Chris. Now over to you, and you're going to introduce um, Fiona to us and start our discussion. Hello. Um, hello, Fiona. We could spend the next 30 minutes talking about Worcestershire, and you and I would be perfectly <laughs> happy with that, but uh, that might be a bit exclusive. So um, can I introduce you properly? Chief Executive of the Town and Country Planning Association, uh, I've looked you up and I know that you are a fellow geography graduate. We've got a lot in common, haven't we? Um, <laughs> you have, you, then you went to Oxford and did an MSc in biodiversity. Like, that, like as if that was ever going to catch on. Um, <laughs> what was I thinking? And then a whole series of fascinating jobs. You have worked for the National Farmers Union. You were the head of planning at the CPRE. Um, senior policy, policy uh, advisor um, and then a chief executive of the campaign for national parks and now chief executive of the town and country 
Bang Association. That is a dream career, frankly. <laughs> well, I don't know if everyone would agree um, <laughs> with that, but it's, it's certainly been interesting, yeah. Any difficult days at the CPRE? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, uh, so um, can I ask you, when was the TCPA founded? So the TCPA was founded back in 1899 by Ebenezer Howard. So our history is very intertwined with the Garden City movement. We, when we were originally created, we were the Garden City Association. Um, and he founded the organisation to help take forward the vision in his book, uh, tomorrow um, for what he called the experiment, a garden city experiment, um, which he argued was a, basically a belief uh, or basically a sort of way to uh, create a better way of delivering high quality and equitable environments and homes, jobs and social connections that people needed, uh, which of course then led to the development of Letchworth and Welling Garden Cities. Um, and so a lot of that obviously underpins what we still do today. Um, but isn't solely sort of, so yeah, we sort of very much draw on that heritage, but uh, of course are really interested in renewing existing places just as much as creating new large scale places. Well, you couldn't be any more on topic, could you? Biodiversity and new towns, uh, incredible. Now, a lot of our viewers know um, about the RTPI and are indeed members. You're obviously a different organisation, but what, what's the, the key difference there between um, these two names that we know about but don't necessarily always understand the difference. Yeah, so we work, as you, as hopefully people would expect, we work closely with the RTPI. So, for example, um, some current work we're doing with them is around climate change. We published a climate, we jointly published a climate change guide a few years ago, focused on supporting local authorities to better embed climate change into local plans. Uh, and we're updating that because policy has evolved quite rapidly in relation to that. Um, and I know you had Wei Yang on your show a few um, episodes ago uh, in her capacity as president of uh, RTPI. I know she talked about Howard's book and the Garden City uh, vision, and she's also one of our members. So there's a lot, you know, there's lots of shared interests. Um, but of course, the RTPI is the chartered institute or, uh, you know, responsible for maintaining professional standards um, and accrediting planning courses. And we absolutely aren't. Um, and part of that role for the RTPI is, is again, championing planners and the power of planning. Um, our focus is on creating homes and places and communities in which everyone can thrive. And so we are very much interested and work on the planning system because we believe it can be transformational in terms of helping us achieve that aim. Um, but we're also quite clear that sometimes the planning system isn't helping us to achieve those outcomes. And we, you know, and we're very happy to talk about that more and I'm sure we will come on to it. Um, so our work focuses on influencing the planning system and working with planners, but it's very much to achieve our outcomes and our aim and our vision. Um, but we also, of course, recognise that aspects of that vision will be achieved outside the statutory planning system. So it's not solely, we're not solely interested in working with planners. It's very much around that placemaking agenda and recognising that planning has a key part in that, but not the sole uh, sort of ability to deliver some of that. Okay, so uh, guiding the planning system. Have you have you got much on at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one or two little things. Yeah, so, so what is the position for, for the TCPA towards the white paper proposals? So um, we, we were actually very clear that the planning system does need reform. Uh, we did quite a you know, substantial piece of work, which we published back, I think it was in late 2018, called the Rainsford Review, where we you know, 
colleagues took evidence, went out and talked to community groups, talked to developers about what worked, what didn't work, uh, and really tried to set out a comprehensive uh, sort of what reform agenda would look like. So we're not anti-reform at all. We're not trying to defend the status quo, but we do have some concerns about what was set out in the planning white paper. Um, I think we part of that is that we absolutely know there are lots of really, there's really positive language in the planning white paper, which absolutely, you know, we welcome. So I think there's some great quotes around um, that, you know, part of the reform agenda is to rediscover the original mission and purpose of those who sought to improve our homes and streets in late Victorian and early 20th century Britain. The original vision has now been buried under layers of legislation in case law. I would agree with that. Uh, you know, we agree that it's complex. Uh, and I know the minister last week, that was one of his, uh, he used a very complex word to describe complex, but fundamentally. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, they recognise that pub the public has lost trust in the planning system. So we agree with all of that. I think what uh, the reason we raised quite a lot of concerns in response to the planning white paper is that we didn't necessarily think that the recommendations and proposals necessarily tackled the issues that had been raised uh, in those warm words. Uh, so, for example, um, talking about making it less complex, for example, uh, our understanding of the consent arrangements in renewal areas, as far as we could interpret it, is that it's going to be a mixture of permitted development, permission in principle and traditional development management which sounds quite complex to me. Uh, so, you know, there are elements like that where we just, we're just trying to understand quite how it would work in practice. Uh, we also, you know, we absolutely agree with making planning more accessible, fantastic. We want more people involved in plan making. So we need a radical reform to achieve that because we've been talking about that for quite a while. Um, you know, so actually would the reforms achieve that? We're not sure. And we're also worried that they use access, making it more accessible is not the same as making it more democratic. Uh, and there are concerns around some of the suggestions around changing um, or removing or amending the right of the public to be heard and be involved in um, local plan examinations, for example. So there, there's things like that, that again, we just, we just want to understand better. I think generally, again, you know, it, it was argued that this is a holistic reform agenda and it isn't, you know, there are some really big uh, gaps, I think, in what's set out in the planning white paper. So they recognise the duty to cooperate doesn't work particularly well, but we don't know what's suggested to replace it. And we think strategic planning is incredibly important if we want to tackle some of these issues. Um, equally, you know, they sort of point to neighbourhood planning and say, we think it's important, we think we'll retain it, but they don't really explain how it will fit into the new system. Uh, so, yeah, so I think, you know, we've, we've tried to feed in, uh, we've talked to the Minister and the Secretary of State around some of our concerns and tried to be constructive about how we could tackle some of these issues to make it better. Um, but we also think there are probably, you know, other things that need to be done, um, rather than, you know, just thinking about local plans and infrastructure levy. There's a huge amount that needs to sit around that. Yes, well, being concerned about the sheer extent of the white paper proposals, uh, I think probably there's about 20,000 people who might immediately share that view as well. Um, and certainly most of us. Um, can I ask about your, your membership then? Because um, who are the members of the, of the DCPA? 
So we, we're quite small. I don't know if I should admit it, but we've only got about a thousand members. So we're much smaller than the RTPI and I think probably much smaller than some people think we are. Um, but those members that we do have are a mixture of individuals who are predominantly planners. Um, but also we have quite a lot of organisational members, so quite a lot of local authorities are members of, of the TCPA. Um, and that some of those relationships are quite transactional. People join because uh, they want to get a copy of our journal uh, or they want discounted rates at some of our events. And other people we know join because they believe, you know, in this philosophy about a better way of living and uh, some of our campaigning work for, you know, improving housing standards and things like that. So they're quite a mixture, but we're very conscious that we want to, you know, we do recognise actually to achieve our vision, we have to look beyond the statutory planning system. And so we do want to reach beyond planners. Um, and so, yeah, but just, you know, if any of your listeners today are keen to learn more about the TCPA, please do visit our website and uh, think about joining. Yes, well, you may have five particular people going to join you immediately, I would have thought. it's uh, it, Because not everybody has understood the organisation's role, but you also do, my, my last question before I pass it on to the others, is you also um, do research, don't you? You mentioned, obviously, the Rainsford Review that everybody knows about, but uh, other research are doing research for sports. Port England, for example, who, who commission you to carry out the work in these areas. Is that right? Well, so Port England, we have a three-year funding agreement with them. Uh, so they recognise that we do lots of work around reuniting planning and health. And so they have a work stream around active environments. So as well as, I think, the sort of formal sporting opportunities, which of course, you know, football pitches and um, you know, leisure facilities, they recognise that actually if we're going to tackle some of the health challenges that our population faces, it actually we need to better embed people being active in their day-to-day -day lives. So they have a strand of work called Active Environments. And so they uh, give us some funding as part of that. Uh, so they, for example, help with that, that funding helped support um, some guidance we put out yesterday about 20-minute neighbourhoods. Um, and so you're talking about, you know, complete, compact communities, which we, of course, believe relate back to the Garden City uh, principles. Um, but yeah, so they support that. Uh, and that includes both putting out national guidance, but also running workshops. We've been doing it for quite a while, but we run workshops with local authorities where actually part of that is simply getting planners and health professionals in the same room and talking to each other so that actually there is that join up about understanding the needs of the local community in terms of health inequalities and actually therefore thinking, using that data to actually inform the development of local plans. Um, so, yeah, we do quite a wide range of things, but that's that's one of them. Well, that couldn't be more relevant either, could it, in terms of uh, health and planning right now? Uh, highly, highly relevant. Well, thank you very much. Those are my questions. I'm now going to ask Mary uh, for her question. Thank you very much. Um, so, Fiona, my question is, what does the uh, TCPA consider as the biggest barrier to the effective planning and delivery of new garden communities? And do you consider that expanding the DCA process to embrace new communities is the answer? Uh, and if not, what is? So uh, we think in terms of one of the main barriers, we certainly think the lack of strategic approach to large scale, scale development or in terms, you know, strategic approach to everything, to be honest, uh, is one of the biggest barriers. So, um, you know, we think at the moment they're trying to use local plans uh, on the whole to tackle strategic large scale development and it just mm. isn't working. Um, we think, you know, the, the Uttlesford local plan, I think, is a good example uh, and I think the, the inspectors reported a quote from that around, say, the local the garden community approach 
predetermines the strategy long beyond the plan period and so is unduly inflexible. I think for us really illustrates that that's not working, but I know there's a suggested tweak to the MPPF that's being consulted on at the moment that would tackle that. Um, I think there are other, of course, barriers. Uh, one of them is resourcing local authorities. So, you know, sort of planning for and driving through large scale developments is different from, uh, you know, as some of the other elements that planning departments have to tackle. And so supporting both skills and capacity in that area. Um, if we are going to, you know, expect local authorities to do that, we need to support them to do it. We have a new communities group, so it's 27 local or predominantly local authorities who um, are involved in lots of the large scale sites um, and we bring them together to share learning. And actually one of the things that they talk to us about is that they want to locally determine where these sites should be, but actually what they really need is national now support and leadership on it, because of course not only do these schemes look well beyond the life, you know, the, the sort of five year um, or the life cycle of the local plans, they also get yep. beyond the political cycles at the local level. So it re they really do want national sort of support for it. In terms of DCS and NSIPS regime, we believe there's a big difference between a pipeline or a wind farm and the sort of multifaceted elements of uh, large scale developments and large scale new communities. So we don't think that regime is the right one at the moment. Um, in our response to the planning white paper, we did say um, in its current guise, the NCIPS regime is not fit mm. for that, in our opinion. But if, it, if they were to look at it, updating it and improving it, then maybe. Uh, and in terms of that, we talked about wanting democratic rights to participate um, in the development of the national policy statement that they presumably have to develop um, and clear design standards and, um, and actually the proper involvement of local authorities in that, which, of course, some would argue defeats the purpose slightly, but we do think there has to be that local buy-in to it. Um, we've done quite a lot of research into the post-war new towns programme, which created 32 new towns across the UK. And today, I'm told, is home to 2.8 million people, uh, those new developments. So we do think there's lots to be learned from that, both you know, in terms of what went wrong, as well as actually some yeah. positives. Um, and so actually, we would argue that modernised new, new town development corporations uh, would be one of the routes for driving through some of the large scale development, but they would need to be modernised. So we, we don't, you know, and part of that is around, again, the role of local authorities in that, as well as communities. Um, so we do, you know, yeah, we've written quite a lot about that, but I know we're limited on time. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very good answer. Thank you. Paul, your question? Yeah, so I'm just smiling to myself because I, when I came into the planning system um, back in the 1990s, I was dealing with the tail end of these new town corporations, mm. places Me like too. Warrington and, and Chorley. And I thought they were a great idea. I knew nothing about them. I thought they were a great idea. And then they all get phased out again. It's very mm. odd. But anyway, um, and I have to say as well, Fiona, and I know I've complimented you behind the scenes. I'll compliment you again uh, in, in, in public. I adore the TCPA website um, because it sends you down so many different rabbit holes. It's just fascinating. <laughs> So uh, I'm going to ask you about art in a moment, but just tell you, subsequent to our previous correspond, uh, 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 conversation, I went down the rabbit hole of some of the stuff about your founder. Uh, and in terms of new towns of the late 19th century, apparently they were planning not just for homes, not just for an industry, but also homes for inebriates <laughs> and homes for waifs. So it's got yeah. all my lifestyle, my lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good illustration of the fact they really were, he was really arguing for complete 
communities. You try to cater for everybody. Planning for Yorkshire. Right. My question doesn't relate to that, although it is inspired by the picture uh, of Hull. The, the TCPA has just, just published Putting Art Back Into Planning, a practical guide uh, for councils. And the ability, and that's a picture of the, the, the cover sheet, it's fantastic. So the ability of the planning system to embed meaningful civic art into development uh, across the plan-led and development management process being patchy, um, that's a guide which talks about it not just being about positive development management, but also about civil justice. So tell me, how do you see this guidance working and how about how will this raise consciousness about the importance of public art to proper planning? Yeah, so I think... Um... We're really conscious and we, you know, TCPA end up doing this at times. Sometimes we can fix fixate on the technical side of things and focus on the process rather than the outcomes. Um, and while those outcome, the, the process, getting it right is absolutely important. And I know I'm talking to five lawyers, so absolutely critical. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, but we're really conscious that if we want to create places in which people want to live and work and play and thrive, then actually, you know, there's so much more to life than um, just the planning process. It's got, so, you know, and so that's why we're really conscious that art is important, um, along with many other things. Um, and we recognise that planning, sorry, art can't always be planned for, but we, we are arguing in this guide that the planning system can enable civic art. Um, so... I think in terms of what we're hoping to achieve, we're really conscious that this Westminster government is, of course, talking about beauty uh, and wanting to talk about beautiful places. And that's you know positive. Um, but I think what we're worried about is at times that that fixates on, you know, the quality of a home. It's not you know, it's, it's got to be all encompassing. Uh, and so hopefully this guide might inspire some people, uh, some local authorities to think about that. We know lots of local authorities have corporate art strategies, but don't often make the link between that and the planning system and, and, the, and the ability of the planning system to enable that. Um, but also, I think what this guide highlights is actually that, that as well as an outcome from the planning system, that art can be part of the process. Um, and again, it relates back to, you know, wanting to make the planning system more accessible, more engaging. Uh, so the picture on the front cover of the guide is, um, as you said, a project in Hull, uh, which is, I need to get the name of the organisation. So yeah, so it's a community-led initiative that's set up by Rights Community Action, and it's called the Shorelines Project in Hull, which is one of the case studies we talk about. And the aim of the mural, among other murals, is to actually engage people in the community to talk about the climate emergency and what might need to change and what might it mean for Hull in terms of um, sea level rise and what needs to happen. So, you know, just trying to engage people in a different way. And then there's also an example about a theatre group that does a play about local plans and things. So, again, there's sort of art as part of a process and a way of engaging people as well as that important you know, placemaking agenda. I keep telling this lot, the, the H in Hull is silent. I mean, Sorry. Will these people never <laughs> learn? Thank you very much, Fiona. Imagine that, a play about local plans. Wow. <laughs> Dasha, your question? They'll be literally wrestling to get in. <laughs> um, Fiona, my question. One of the things, and I, I'm going to out the government slightly, that we can see, obviously, we all get... Ad the adverts for various jobs that are going on in the ministry. Um, I mean, the direction of travel seems to be quite clear about the white paper, and Chris has already asked you about that. I mean, generally, are you being listened to by the government? Do you have a do you have a voice with the government? Um, so we certainly talk to them. Um, 
whether or not they're listening, I think it'd be really interesting to see what happens in terms of um, their response to the white paper. And I know when you had the minister on last week, he said they're still, um, you know, considering the 44,000 responses they received. Um, you know, what I think what's interesting for us is, like, so I mentioned the 20 minute neighbourhood guide uh, and actually Department for Education put their logo onto that guide. We're talking to Department for Transport about that guide. We've tried to talk to MHCLG, but they're too busy with the reform agenda. So, you know, there's a really interesting, of course, part of, I think, the challenge with planning is that sometimes it's just put into MHCLG and, you know, and they do planning. But of course, we need to talk to Bayes about climate change. We need to talk about education and transport. And actually, that's part of the challenge with planning, that it can't just be left to MHCLG. Um, so I don't know to what extent they're listening. I really hope so. Mm. Okay, thank you very much. Just to, just satisfy my curiosity, what have you done with your poor cat? Um, they're both shut outside. They're an absolute pain today. So um, <laughs> hoping you know, entertaining themselves. Thank you. Charlie. Asha, you and I must get different um, job adverts because I think for the last five weeks, I keep getting emails from LinkedIn. So they've identified a job for me as head of legal at Poker All Stars in Las Vegas. <laughs> I don't know what the profile. <laughs> profile. Can't imagine why they'd think that would suit you. <laughs> I haven't got a problem. For that. Now, that is a really fun game, getting lots of job adverts being sent anyway, to That's my second career lined up. Um, Fiona, um, I, I really enjoyed reading uh, this week um, Common Ground, the TCPA's alternative prospectus, one's a better word, for, for more incremental planning reform than proposed by the White Paper. And, and I thought, genuinely thought there were some really interesting ideas there. One thing I was struck by, and I don't mean this by way of criticism, but I was struck that it didn't say a huge amount about streamlining the planning process in contrast to the White Paper, which obviously is all about streamlining. Oh, a lot of it is, um, and and reducing the delays in the system. And just by way of illustration, I did a hearing today in a case uh, where the application was submitted in August 2019. It was refused in July 2020. We had the hearing in Mar late March 2021 with a fair wind. We'll get an appeal decision within two years of the first application, um, which isn't great. Um, and uh, and if it goes to the High Court, which hopefully it won't, then you know then you've got a year plus delay after that. Um, so really my question to you is, is, do you and the TCPA, you know, accept that some streamlining is needed? And, and if you were Secretary of State for the delay, how would you speed up the planning system? Well, I'll take these in reverse order. Um, if I was Secretary of State, I would better resource local planning departments, um, because I think that would help with lots of the challenges that we currently face in the system. Um, I so we... So we definitely don't use the language around streamlining our interpretation at times of that is that when government uses it at times it basically is around trying to take the democratic voice out of planning and we you know still are very clear that planning should be in the public interest it should be a democratic process um, and people need to have a chance to have a voice in that system so we consciously don't use that language could the planning system um, be uh, sped up? Probably. I think the challenge is, of course, around thinking about the different parts of that process, isn't it? Like you said, Charlie, that, you know, who, whose fault is it at each different step or what, what is the delay? So planning inspector at times has been cause of delay. And I know there's work around that. Absolutely. It takes too long to, to get local plans in place in some instances. But I think, as you mentioned with Uttlesford earlier, you know, after that decision by 
you know, or the, you know that that local planning examination, they've had to go back and restart again, which is presumably hugely demoralising, slowed everything down. So again, I think that there's some things around that. Um, I did have a quick look at some MHCLG data, uh, and it tells me that in 2019, 2020, 88% of major housing applications were agreed within the 13-week deadline or in an agreed deadline with the applicant. So again, I think it's that challenge of, okay, so what went wrong with the 12%? Um, and understanding that a bit, bit, bit that a bit better. Um, so I think that you know I, my quick win would be to support local planning authorities to do their job better in their part of the process. Um, I think yeah, you know, and part of that is looking at the local plan making process and can they you know things like can they make data more readily available so not everyone's having to think they're starting from scratch. Absolutely, there are some quick wins around that. Um, but beyond that, I think it's quite complicated. Thank you. Well, at least one person in the comments has already said that they've got your vote as Secretary of State. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely don't want it, but the job, anyway. You'll be spending the next three months in Liverpool, it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Three years. Three years, yes. Fiona, thank you very much indeed. It's been really good to talk to you and to hear all these fabulous ideas. I think there'll be quite an interest in your website after the show. And... Uh, Thank you very much for joining us. Charlie. Thank you for having me. Thank Chris, and thank you for me too, Fiona. Uh, now, Champion of the Week, Mary. Yes, thank you very much. My nominated Champions of the Week are two of our old guests, actually. Steve Quartermain and Lord Matthew Taylor have got together and they've produced a very interesting article that was in yesterday's Guardian. Uh, Government Planning White Paper is a Road to the Future is the title of that. And if you missed that, can I tell you that if you go onto the town legal website and look look for talk about town you will find it there enjoy thanks mary nudge paul i just got to say following on for that last thing i don't know about you chris but i think the people that supported the interview uh, the article behind the scenes deserve the champion just a thought yeah um, who are they i've no idea <laughs> Right, nudge. My, my nudge follows from my case from a couple of weeks ago, your case from today, Charlie, which is gypsy policy nationally is a mess. And the problem is that we don't have an identification of need, which allows authorities to say we've done what we're meant to do. And, and that therefore means that communities suffer, the gypsy and traveller communities suffer, and we end up in litigation. And it helps degrade cohesive communities rather than celebrating the differences. So it's a nudge to government to get sorted to back to where we used to be, which is to make proper provision for gypsy and travellers and celebrate that element of diversity, which has been part of British life for the last thousand years. Here, here, Paul. Well, um, that brings us to a close, not just of uh, today's episode, but um, to the close of our third series. Uh, but not our last. We're going to be back after Easter on the 22nd of April 2021. I pause there in trepidation thinking someone's going to tell me. I was about to say, Charlie, I've just dropped oh, I've it right. Right, I don't knock you all down with a feather. There you go. I've actually done my prep. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, we start on on, on on fourth series, the twenty second of April. Um, we've um, uh, Rob has very kindly suggested that we ask you for feedback. So um, if any of you got any feedback on what we might do next season, what we might not do next season, please do email admin at have we got planningnewsview.com and let us know, or email us on LinkedIn, or of course contact us directly. We've got something in the pipeline for between now and our return in late April. I can't say anything more about that just yet, but we will keep you posted in the usual way. Uh, until then, have a great weekend. Um, thank you again to Fiona. Happy Easter to those of you who celebrate it. And um, see you soon. Thank you all for following us. Take care. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Happy Bye. Easter.
Happy Easter. Cheers. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.